Welcome to the Singapore Noodles Podcast. I'm Pamelia Chia and today's episode is part of the Everyday Singaporean series. In this series, I speak with Singaporeans whose work might not be directly related to food, but who have refreshing insights on Singaporean food culture. Today, I'm very excited to introduce a longtime friend of mine, Felicia Tan, whose parents are retired hawkers. The last time she visited me in Melbourne, she shared with Wax and I about her experiences growing up as a hawker child, and I found it so interesting a perspective that I invited her on this show to share. Hey, Pam. Hello, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I'm so excited. You know, this is the first time I'm having a friend on the podcast. (laughs) I'm very honoured. I'm very honoured. So can you share a little bit with our listeners about your parents and their stall? What did they sell and where were they located? My parents are retired now, but uh, for about 20 to close to 30 years, they were selling Hokkien prawn mee and carrot cake uh, in this coffee shop in Tampines. Uh, they only had one stall um, and we were there for like 20 years. We started out in Ishun and then after that they moved to Tampines and they've been there um, ever since. And they retired about, I would say, seven years ago. So it's been some time. And what, what have they been doing? I mean, like, are they still cooking Hokkien mee and stuff at home? No, not really. <laughs> My parents are living the retired life, um, just like, you know, pursuing hobbies and you know, being restless, um, eager to be grandparents kind of, kind of, kind of setting. But <laughs> otherwise, I think they are, they are enjoying retirement. Yeah, yeah. And how was that transition process for them like? I mean, you know, the hawker life is so intense and it's like so many hours of being on your feet and working nonstop. So how did they transition from being hawkers to being retirees? So my mom actually transitioned really well because she's been looking forward to it for like the longest time. And <laughs> my dad was the one who struggled with it extremely because um, he's a little bit of a workaholic and he also felt quite... I mean, the business was doing well, right? Don't get me wrong. Um, and the reason he retired was because my mom had always had this goal in mind that once my brother and I graduated from university, she wanted to just stop, um, you know, uh, being hawkers. Um, and so a lot of people didn't understand why we were giving up um, the stall when it had such good business. And my, my father also thought that it was quite a pity. Uh, but from our perspective was that it's such a... It's not a very healthy profession. Um, they're not super young. And so to us, I would rather them, you know, enjoy whatever time they have. Um, and I mean, it's as children for us, that's what we would want to see for our parents. Um, and so my dad, when he retired, he was so restless. He actually then went to get his taxi driving license. Um, and then ever since then, he's been driving taxi as well as Grab um, and having a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> Yeah. That's so cute. I, I think it also has a few parallels with the hawker life, right? In that there's a huge service element and, you know, it's very, very social. So you get to speak with different people. So I guess that fills that kind of void in him. So did your parents ever feel like it was a waste that the recipe was not being passed down to you or your, you know, to your brother? Uh, I think in terms of passing down to my brother and I, no. Um, in terms of the stall, like not, you know, not being there anymore. I think occasionally it would come up. Uh, so actually, just like a few weeks ago, um, we had a customer, like an old customer, call my mom because we didn't change numbers and and ask like, oh, you know, can I order noodles? And my mom was so confused because it's been what seven years, um, and she just said like, we stopped selling it for so many years. <laughs> I mean, probably you know, it's been some time since you came to eat. <laughs> But thanks for still remembering. Um, 
but but I think for them it's just you know we had a very solid customer base, so it was definitely a waste to for that to go away. Uh, but in terms of you know, but they never had an intention of my brother and I actually picking up the hawker trade. Like they would actually not like it very much. So it was never a thing that they had planned for us. Yeah. Mm. But we did pass it down to the the person who was working with my dad like towards the end. Mm. He did teach her how to cook it. So yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay, let's go to the start. Um, you know, when you first discovered that your your parents were hawkers, what were your initial impressions? For me, I think as a kid, it uh, it probably didn't really, um, it didn't occur to me that it was very different. Because, I mean, I grew up at a coffee shop, right? So I spent all my weekends there, some of the weeknights there. Um, you know, I knew everybody in the in the coffee shop. Um, to me, like the initial impression was just that it is very hard work. Um, it's always, you know, been impressed upon us, whether it's just from observing our parents or seeing everyone else in a coffee shop or talking to people um, and hearing from them like, oh, on weekends, I went to the zoo or whatever. Whereas for us, you know, we spent it at a coffee shop with my parents. Um, it's just, you know, being a hawker is a really tough job. It's just back-breaking hard work in in a very uncomfortable hot and crowded environment um and so that was always the impression but and and i don't think that evolved <laughs> i think towards the end I, I still thought that it was hard work um but it's honest hard work right at the end of the day so if you're willing to put in the effort you will succeed if you want if you serve you know good food um you will get customers you will do well so yeah. You know, recently I was watching Jack Neal's film again. Um, I not stupid. <laughs> Such a classic, <laughs> right? And um, you know, like I think in his film there was this very negative stereotype attached to hawkers. Like, I mean, uh, if you don't do, if you don't go to school, then you'll end up like that. Have you ever heard people actually say those kind of things to you or to your parents? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so because my my. Uh, my brother and I, we basically uh, spend most of our weekends um, at the coffee shop and then also helping out uh, since from a very young age. So we would hear, you know, people who would just come up to us while we were studying in the coffee shop um, and say things like, uh, you better study hard so you do not end up like your parents or um, I'm sure you, you have already dropped out of school or um, do you know why you have to study so hard? It's because your parents cannot give you anything, which is honestly as a seven, I still remember I was around seven or eight years old hearing all these things. And those comments never went away, um, even all the way until I was close to like in uni and everything. Um, I think there are people who just look down on hawkers and think that it's a very crude and low class profession. Mm. Um, and and it's, it's rather unfortunate uh, in that sense. Mm. And you said that, you know, those comments never went away, even though, you know, even when you were in uni, do you mean that it kind of impacted the way that, you know, your self-esteem, the way that you saw yourself? Uh, not really, because my family always took it quite lightheartedly in the sense that we thought it was quite funny. <laughs> because a lot of, it, it comes from, it stems from... It stems from ignorance, right, for these people uh, to make these kind of comments and also speaks more about them as individuals than you. So I, we never really took it to heart. Um, and my parents were very invested in our education. So I have them to thank for that. Um, I mean, I, I did go to, you know, rather good schools. Um, but what was funny was that even when I was in secondary school, you know, um, as well as in, in JC, I would have classmates ask me things like, oh, like if your parents are hawkers, how do you afford things? 
<laughs> which is which is quite funny because um, it shows the level of I would say between the different society layers, um, how little the the people in the different layers know about each other as well. Mm. Yeah, but I don't think it ever affected us. Um, we just you know took it took it in our stride. I think. Mm. But do you feel that that was a legitimate question? You know, I mean, everyone knows that hawkers can barely make ends meet. So do you feel that that is a false stereotype? I would say that um, with every single profession, there are people who do well. There will be people who um, who don't, you know, who struggle, right? I wouldn't say that it's easy, um, easy work, especially, you know, in, in today's world um, where things are getting more and more expensive. So I, I, would, I wouldn't say that, and of course, a lot of people will not, because it's such hard work, most people will not choose to enter this profession and a lot of the the hawkers will not want their kids to inherit as well because I mean I grew up with with a lot of them right so a lot of them would just be like yeah this is not something I want for my kids I want my kids to have a cushy desk job in an air-conditioned environment because <laughs> that is literally what you don't get in a coffee shop <laughs> um, but but I mean yeah with there, there will be people who succeed in every single kind of line of work I think yeah. uh, but that doesn't mean that it makes them lower class or, mm. or whatsoever um, yeah the kind of social stereotype I think is quite wrong mm. so you know you told me that your dad actually encouraged you to wear your school PE t-shirt when you helped out at the stall what was his motivation behind that was it to kind of prove people wrong that you know my daughter can be intelligent and she can you know succeed in life as much as someone's daughter who who doesn't have hawkers as parents yeah i think that was that was especially um especially i was from uh rather rather well-known schools so uh but i guess especially junior college right because i was from a rather famous school so so from his perspective he was obviously a very proud dad um and from that point of view, yes, he wanted to sort of prove to people that, hey, you know, um, I managed to, like, uh, I managed to um, guide and raise a daughter who, who can enter uh, a junior college as such. Um, but for me, I was just like, yeah, I don't see a point of proving anything to anyone. <laughs> but it's more from, like, from his angle, it's, it's also a lot of pride, right? Even until today, um, when we talk about my career and everything, he, he is very proud. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is which is nice because I feel like um, that was what they always wanted for us as uh, as parents, and they really gave us everything we needed um, in terms of education, in terms of like cur- you know extracurricular activities. Um, I never felt that I did not have the same opportunities mm-hmm. um, as as anyone else. I can't say the same for. I mean, I do think that the my parents were very strict. So mm-hmm. in the coffee shop, there were a lot of kids running around. Um, but we were the ones who always had a cane next to us. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. My mom would always be like, do your, do your homework. <laughs> and then everyone would be running around, playing Digimon, playing catching. Um, and my brother and I cannot move from our seats until we finish all our assessment books. Oh, wow. So, so, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so you were, stu- you were like studying or like revising at the hawker centre? Yeah. Oh yeah, my God. Yeah, so, like, yeah, and that's why like the customers always found it quite amusing also because we would have this huge stack of just like yeah. test papers and assessment books. And the thing is we didn't used to have my parents would never buy us Game Boys, mm-hmm. um, but they would buy us a lot of books. So yeah. in order to stay entertained for the whole day, I would bring like 
I don't know, 15 books <laughs> to the coffee shop every oh. Saturday and every Sunday because that was what I would be using to pass my time um, when, you know, when it was boring. Yeah, that's so, I, mean, yeah, I just know that about you. So when you told your friends at school about what your parents did for a living, do you feel like any of them like kind of perceived you in a different light? Because, you know, you went to really elite schools. So I mean, the demographic of people in such schools naturally are of a certain, you know, social economic class, right? So did you receive any, um, you know, difference in the way that you were being treated or seen? Mm, I wouldn't say very much. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think I experienced it very much. I do get like the passing comments, like, "How do you afford to go on holidays? How do you afford things?" A kind of very ignorant comment. Um, but I, I never sort of experienced. I, I mean, this is Singapore at the end of the day. It's meritocratic, right? So um, we're all in the same school. Yeah. <laughs> so, who are you <laughs> to yeah. comment, like, you know, comment on anything? <laughs> Yeah. You know my personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you're a very, very confident, very expressive person. Whereas, like, I guess on on in the media, the stereotype of hawker kids is so different, right? What are some of the stereotypes that you yourself feel has been portrayed in the media about hawkers or their children? Maybe, like, crude, uh, unsophisticated, um delinquents <laughs> i get that comment a lot <laughs> when i'm helping out at the stall are you a delinquent are you like a dropout <laughs> it's very funny that i always just give a fabricate a different story every time um just for entertainment um i think these are all like uh you know they are uncultured um yeah my parents are chinese speaking right um so i speak i speak mandarin at home um i don't think that i think that at the end of the day the reason why none of that resonated with me is because it's still an honest job like it's i, I don't see how um I don't, I don't see why there should be that kind of stereotype it is in a rather busy and like hectic environment um, and you do see like certain um i would say like people like behavior right in, in the kind of environment but it doesn't mean that they are less or more um, important contributing members of the of society, I guess. Mm, yeah, um, sure. Like to me, it's just like it, it's what makes Singapore, right? Like, I don't think you can find any place in Singapore that's more, that represents Singapore more than a coffee shop or a hawker centre. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Yeah. I was just wondering if you previously read um, what Pat Law wrote about her own experience being a hawker daughter? That was like a few years ago, I remember. I didn't even know who she was. But I think her comments about, I mean, her story and her recounting about her parents' life and her own life really surprised many people because that is a backstory that not many people know about, you know. So what did you feel when you read her account? Um, it resonated. <laughs> Definitely resonated. I mean, um, it's... You, you see all sorts of people in the coffee shop. You encounter all sorts of customers, right? Um, and they, uh, they are, there are definitely some very unpleasant ones. Um, and so whatever her parents went through, I could definitely see that happening, whether it's the coffee shop management um, being unreasonable or the customers being unreasonable. Yeah, so I think on both ends, like it's, these are problems that hawkers experience on a day-to-day basis. 
Mm. And in her recount, I think that was a very clear distinction that she made between the foreign customers and the local customers. Did you experience that divide when you were helping your parents at the stall? So I can't like say for sure because um, especially because we didn't serve a lot of foreign customers um, given that we were based in Tampines. Um, but I mean, we definitely had our fair share of customers like locals in the sense that um, very rude and self-entitled, you know, customers who will kick up a fuss at the stall when we were being told that the wait would be too long and we couldn't give them their food first uh, or like will help themselves to excessive amounts of utensils or condiments. I still remember there was this guy um, who, who started to sue us. <laughs> it was so funny because he asked for seven sets of cutlery yeah, a $3 plate of noodles. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, no, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Uh, and I just gave him two sets. And, and he threatened to sue us, which is honestly really funny if you think about it. Because, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, he was, and he was very well dressed, like in a suit and everything. Um, so, yeah, it's quite, you just have all different types of customers there. Um, and I'm sure there are unpleasant customers all mm-hmm. around, right? I wouldn't say yeah, that, yeah. you know, whether locals or foreigners, they're definitely unpleasant mm-hmm. people just in general. Um, but um, well, what I hear from my friends who are expats in Singapore or are visiting from overseas, there is a sort of huge sense of awe and appreciation that Singaporeans have access to such delicious food at such affordable prices. Yeah, um, and they don't, you know, they, they, like, even when I go, you know, overseas and I tell them that oh, um, what you have to have in Singapore is like hawker food, right? Because a plate of noodles would just be you know, four or five dollars, and it's it's a full meal. And it's a good meal. Exactly. I'm totally experiencing that now because now whenever you go out and eat, it's like fifteen to twenty dollars and it's you know, cooked with so much less skill on average compared to what you get at a hawker center because everyone at the hawker center pretty much learns a trade for like five to ten years at least, right? Before they go out and sell hockey meal or whatever. Um, but do you feel that the unpleasantness of these customers uh, stem from just themselves being unpleasant people in general, or does it stem from them uh, viewing ho- uh, local food in a different way? So definitely, I would say that it's probably a mix of both. Um, and also maybe that they feel like a sense of superiority uh, to the hawkers, and that's why they think that, you know, um, I'm giving you my money, you have to give me my money's worth oh, yeah. kind of thing. But then you don't, like, you forget that you're only giving like $3. So... <laughs> Yeah. It's like don't expect um, restaurant level service um, at, a, at a coffee shop, right? At the end of the day. Um, but they still have that huge sense of entitlement, I feel. Yeah. Um, at least for some of the really unpleasant ones that I've encountered. Yeah. yeah. But it's, um, but I do see a, an increasing appreciation for local food from the younger generation, at least from my friends. Um, um, and especially for, even for me, myself, uh, when I come back from traveling and all that. Because uh, I do spend a lot of time overseas, um, like I only want to eat hawker food, right? At the end of the day, um, and and a lot of Singaporeans who spend a lot of time overseas have a massive sense of appreciation. I mean, like like you yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's so ironic, uh, you know, and it's very very sad yeah. that we have to go overseas in order to really appreciate what we have. Um, I think a lot of people, when we talk about hawker culture, we always talk about pricing because we, I think people who believe in the continuity of hawker food, we always believe that the prices have to increase in order to, you know, make it easier on the hawkers. Um, 
But at the same time, I feel that a lot of hawkers are very resistant to increasing the price because um, a lot of them are thinking about the you know elderly folk in Singapore who might not be able to afford more expensive meals. So what is your take on that? Well, firstly, I think that it's also a lot of Singaporeans are very resistant to um, the price increase. <laughs> the price increase. So even like a 20 cent or 50 cent increase in price would result in huge protest from the customers it's so ridiculous right yeah it's so ridiculous i still remember my parents used to sell like carrot cake for one dollar like starting price one dollar and obviously as prices increase like from the eggs to you know the actual cake and the plates and everything like inflation right you need to take Mm. that into account we raised the prices to 150 and we got so much like um backlash uh, object yeah backlash from the customers um it was baffling because uh yeah, <laughs> they, they, I, think, I think that's why a lot of hawkers are resistant as well because mm-hmm. um, they will get a lot of anger from their customers. At least that's what I experienced. I don't think that, um, I think that at the end of the day, we're always trying to balance the, the costs um, that's, that's, you know, um, that they're spending on the ingredients and all that. And we want to make sure that what we are buying um, in terms of serving to the customers are the best and the freshest. Mm. Um, and it's not... Um, but at the same time, if the cost of the ingredients go up, it has to go up as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's quite difficult, I think, especially now that things are getting more and more expensive in Singapore. But some of the locals still do not think that the price of hawker food should increase. Mm. And I think that reeks of a kind of disdain for your own culture or this notion, This maybe it's, you know, because of our colonial past or because when we look to the West, it's like always better. But, you know, this inherent notion that Asian food has to be cheap, you know, whether it's Singaporean or Vietnamese or Thai. So I remember recently when I was on social media, I saw this post um by this uh, banh mi shop in Melbourne. So they make everything from scratch, including the liver pate, the charcuterie, and they charged it, um, they charged $12 for one handmade banh mi. And they said that a lot of people came in and made a lot of noise about it because they're like, how can a banh mi be $12? So this uh, owner of this shop, she posted on Instagram saying, why is it that you feel okay spending that amount of money on say, a pan of chocolate, you know? Uh, or croissant, but you're not willing to pay for bunny. Are you inherently saying that our culture as Asians is inferior to the Western culture? So I feel that maybe, you know, in Singapore, people also have that kind of disdain. Like people would spend maybe $12 on a pack of granola, you know, that is very simply made. But when it comes to, you know, artisanal um, handmade things from Singapore, whether it's kueh or hawker food, people are just very reluctant to. I think it's I think it's a it's also what you're used to, right? At the end of the day, because it, especially if um, you've been to Vietnam and you've had banh mi, like roadside banh mi, for less than a dollar, um, and then now you're you're asked to pay twelve. Oh, you're you see like the same banh mi being sold for twelve dollars. Like I think it's just what um, like just Southeast Asia in general has always been a relatively low cost region, and the locals are used to that. Um, but I mean, like, just if I, if I put that in contrast, like in the US, um, there's this, there was this like Singaporean restaurant that opened up in SF. Um, and, and my colleagues were telling me about it very excitedly. I wanted to check the prices and I was balking at the prices because the Nasi Loma, I think, was like 24 USD. Um, and the way they wrote it was so, you know, 
ooh, like fried chicken wing, and you know, like, and like, especially fried peanuts and like a fragrant toasted coconut rice, that kind of thing. But it's just nasi lemak, right? And like, if you ask me to pay 24 USD for nasi lemak, I would still balk at it because I am used to, uh, it's not that I think it's inferior, it's probably just I'm so used to it being affordable back yeah. in where, like, back where I was from. Um, that that I would not be so willing to pay for it mm. um, at such a high price, but I, I do think that especially um, as the next generation of hawkers pick up, right, of local hawkers actually uh, pick this up, um, they are you know innovating it in in different ways. Whether it is uh, trying to stay as traditional as possible or trying to innovate and make it almost like Instagram worthy, um, and hopefully hopefully there will be. Um, a greater appreciation from that sense uh, from the local community mm. that they're willing to you know to see the effort that goes behind it yeah I think you raised a really you know important point which is that you know it's always about the benchmark that you're comparing it to right I mean if your benchmark is Hokkien Mee or Hawker food has to be less than five dollars then you know anywhere else would be considered expensive so I remember when I was working at Kendall Nut you know we were serving sambal belacan that we took like hours to like blend and cut and whatever and our customers like some of the customers would be like why are you even charging for your sambal belacan you know if I go to a hawker center they give me a chili for free you know so you know I feel very conflicted because I feel that maybe our baseline has to be raised if not everyone would take it you know, that that is the norm. That's how things are supposed to be. But then how do you account for the lower strata of, mm. um, of the population, right? Because yeah. the reason is um, the beauty of the Hawker Centre is everyone can enjoy it, yeah. um, regardless of what kind of economic background you are from. Um, and, and it's good food, you know, good nutritious food that everyone can enjoy. So if you raise the baseline, then you're forgetting about the people who get left behind. Yeah, true. And it's sad, right, because you do see um, a proliferation, like just, you don't, like, for me, I'm a, I'm, I'm a hawker kid, but I'm not picking up that profession anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of these sort of recipes and, and, and old stalls are probably going to phase out in the next 10, 20 years, um, especially as these uh, stall owners retire and we're just going to be losing a huge chunk of our hawker culture if there's not a greater sense of appreciation um, or adoption across the board um, with regards to it or it would end up becoming very manufactured in a sense mm-hmm. because now now you see a lot of uh, coffee shop chains right and they just yeah. have the same setup in every single chain with the same stalls um, and everything just feels quite uh, how, how do I describe it um, it is no longer as authentic, I feel, because you, you don't see Singaporeans there anymore serving the food and, and the taste is gone, I feel. Mm. And you know, just now you also mentioned that a lot of people are just creating Instagram-friendly kind of food at hawker centres. So what are your thoughts on this? You know, I feel that relevance is important, but where should we draw the line? Yeah, that's why I, I see two types of hawkers, like next-gen hawkers emerging, right? One is the, I want to stay as close to my traditional roots as possible. And then the other one is, you know, I'm going to turn this bath for me into some fusion thingy <laughs> with truffle. <laughs> and, um, and I think like props to both sides, right? Because there, there's like different skills and different grit involved in making that happen. So maybe a way of thinking about it is, how do you make it such that it is relatable to the younger generation, that the younger generation can understand more about hawker culture through the kinds of media that they are used to today 
um, in order to educate them and and make them be aware and appreciate it more. Mm. And are you hopeful for the future of hawker food? Uh, I am. Um, I think I think that it will take its evolution, right? But if there's one thing about Singaporeans is that we love good food. <laughs> All Singaporeans love good food. Um, I so I don't think it's going anywhere. I think that I think that what I will be said is there will be some things that I'm used to eating as a child. You know um, that those stalls might not be there anymore in the next ten twenty years. Um, but I'm sure it will give way to to new things. And also because Singapore has evolved so much as a society um, over the past like past few decades. So maybe the hawker culture that's evolving will reflect the, the kind of society that we have today as well. Mm. I feel like a lot of people have a lot of opinions about how the hawker trade should evolve. Previously, I had KFC on the show and he talked about his vision for this hawker academy, you know, where there's documentation of the techniques and the recipes. What are your ideas on how to help the hawker trade be a more sustainable one? I think previously you mentioned that it's not a very sustainable or very healthy way of living, right? So how do you feel that this can be a possibility, you know, this work-life balance. I think that whole work-life balance aspect is, is very subjective to individual, right? If you have someone like my, my dad, who is a workaholic, you will never get work-life balance and you will not want work-life balance. <laughs> so, um, but then I guess, I guess maybe a little bit more clarity around, um, around how they are managed as well. Like I think pets, pet laws, um, parents like went through in terms of the hawker management, um, in terms of the kind of uh, rental uh, rental prices that they are being subjected to. Um, I think I think having a little bit more transparency on that um, from their end in order for them to manage cost, uh, because that's the main thing. Like they have to they have to be able to deliver the same food at the same prices, but with higher costs. I don't think that's possible, um, and that's why people work longer hours, right? So if you want to think about a better lifestyle for them, I would say you know you start from what structurally can be done. Um, whether it's from the government, whether it's from like private organizations, um, such that um, there is a there's more visibility over what goes into managing a hawker business, um, and I think the the hawker ac- academy idea is great, right? Like, is there a way for like are there you know we have we have the French cooking schools and people go there and learn all the all the French recipes and um, but we don't have an equivalent in Singapore for that, um, and that's a pity as well, yeah. Yeah, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about UNESCO, you know, the recent UNESCO nomination. Uh, I want to know what your honest thoughts are on this, whether you feel that it, it would uh, like affect any change, any real change. Not really. <laughs> I'm not sure what like, we're supposed to do with that. I mean, it's not like botanic gardens, like people go and visit, right? <laughs> like it's just a, oh, hawker, like, I guess it's, it's probably just a label. Maybe it would raise more awareness globally about it but otherwise like people already know of like hawker food in, in Singapore as, as being synonymous, as synonymous with hawker cup like Singapore culture right so um I'm not sure how much yeah what actual impact it will make <laughs> I don't know what I think I, I, I personally don't think that it will I actually totally agree with you because when I first saw um, that Singapore Hawker Food was being nom- nominated for UNESCO, everyone on my social media was like so happy about it. Like they were posting about it, oh, clap for our hawkers and you know, finally our hawkers get the recognition. But I do agree with you because Singaporeans already know 
how rich our hawker culture and history and how wonderful the, the food tastes, right? We, we don't need further convincing. Um, but as for whether that translates into being willing to pay them more respect, you know, in real life, in real life situations or being willing to pay more, uh, I think that's a different story. Um, and I recently saw that you learned how to cook Hokkien mee um, from your parents. So how was that whole process like? Was it the very first time that you were learning how to make the dish from them? Yeah. So funnily enough, even though um, we, like, I grew up at the coffee shop and I helped out at the coffee shop since I was, I think, like seven or eight, um, my parents have uh, never, never allowed me to touch the, the wok, has never allowed me to touch any form of cooking because they're just like, you don't need to learn it. Like, don't need to learn it at all. <laughs> you know, you're never going to use this in the future kind of thing. Um, so uh, for me, like we just, yeah, for me, I know, I still sort of remember the steps because I've seen him do it so many times. Um, but it was a rather surreal experience because as my mom was teaching me the steps, I was like in the back of my head remembering my dad, like watching my dad do it um, at the coffee shop store last time. Um, and, and for me, I mean, I love Hokkien Mee, right? So uh, until today, I don't think I, I found a, Hokkien mee that can that has the same kind of taste as my dad's Hokkien mee, and obviously I am extremely extremely biased. So, <laughs> um, um, but in this case, like it's 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 just nice to to learn it and it, like almost like things have come full circle. Mm. Yeah. Was it an emotional experience for you, like reliving? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say emotional. I mean, we're an Asian household. We're not emotional, but <laughs> but um, it was. It, I mean, it was. Um, it was probably quite cathartic uh, in that sense. Um, and obviously the, the, the feeling of recreating it at home is just different. Uh, I mean, we were in a very comfortable kitchen at home versus at the stall in the coffee shop, right? So it's almost like a lot of flashbacks were happening um, while I was learning. Yeah. yeah. And did you feel like, wow, I'm receiving this inheritance from them? Like, did it feel like, like them passing you something intangible almost? Uh, yes, but um, in a sense, I, I view that for all my mom's recipes. So um, like I'm, on a, I'm on this quest to learn as many recipes as I can from her because she's this fantastic cook, right? So I'm really trying to learn as many as I can from her. And she, on her side, like, God bless her, she's trying to digitize <laughs> everything for me. <laughs> so like, I, got her, I, got, yeah, I got her an iPad and then like every single recipe, she would sort of jot it down on the iPad. She would show me like this folio of recipes that she's collating, mm. um, and she said that yeah, she's gonna give that to me uh, next time so that I can actually learn how to make it right. But um, oh. like the other recipes I've learned um, this time around, uh, I also learned like prawn noodle soup. I also learned like curry, mm. uh, laksa, chapik dal, that kind of thing. Um, so it's it's more about like for me, it's it's a broader thing aside from just the Hokkien mee, yeah. Yeah, and uh, when it comes to things like chakwetiao and hokkien mee, you know, given that it's so time time uh, intensive, what do you feel is its relevance in your life uh, as a working adult? Do you feel like it's more of a kind of good to know kind of recipe, or is it something that you see yourself actually making on a regular basis? Um, I, well, I wouldn't say regular, regular, but I think that especially for Singaporeans who are not in Singapore. Um, it brings a, a sense of familiarity that is almost priceless. 
um, when you're far away from home and in, in, in another country and you have no access to that kind of food. Um, and the beauty of making it at home is that you can customize it to however you want it, right? So like Hokkien Mee, some people like it dry, some people like it wet, some people like it with prawns, um, or like some people like it with more pork, like that kind of thing. You can literally customize it. Um, and I don't think that there's a better or more comforting feeling than being able to recreate it um, in a home away from home with other Singaporeans. So to give you an example, I was in Seattle just last year and I had a massive craving for Baswami. And, and, and so like, <laughs> so, so, so my partner and I actually recreated it uh, together, right? Um, and, and we had it with a few other Singaporeans as well. And it took the whole day, like, you know, making the broth, making the mushrooms um, and like cooking bowl by bowl and, and like customizing the sauce. Um, but like, it's just, yeah, it, it's priceless that you can't put a, you can't, you can't, it's, it's hard to replicate that kind of um, hawker fare overseas, definitely. But when you do it, it's extremely heartwarming. Mm. And so like for me, um, I will probably wouldn't do it on a regular basis. Maybe every other weekend, um, I'll try another recipe. Um, but it's, especially if you're, the purpose of for you starting Singapore noodles was to connect Singaporeans all over the world with food, right? Um, and, and I think that's, that's what it, it should and what it is achieving as well. Mm. So I would love to know, what is your dream Hokkien Mee? Like, what are the characteristics of it? Like, what makes it the perfect Hokkien Mee? So, it has to have enough wok hay. Wok hay. I don't know how to translate wok hay. The breath of the wok. It has to be relatively wet, like enough gravy. The stock must be rich enough. So, a lot of like prawns and prawn heads and like maybe some pork ribs must go into the broth. Um, and it has to have like enough ingredients. It has to have pork lard. Pork lard, yes. And are you... Uh... <laughs> Like thin bihun kind of girl, or are you like the, you know, the a lot of like, yellow noodle kind? It has to be a mix of the yellow noodles and the thick bihun. Yeah. Oh, so then, no, like, you must no thin bihun, just the two mi fun and the yellow noodles. Yeah. Wax loves Hokkien Mee. I also love Hokkien Mee, and he loves the super like, uh, soupy kind, like great a lot of gravy kind. So I mean, he really likes the thin bihun because it kind of clings onto that. But like if you, that's why like there's this step in the in the recipe that you sort of just let the noodles soak in the broth for a while, and I think that's like one of the most important steps. Just that's mm. when it gets all the flavor. I tried making Hokkien Mee for the very first time in my first year of living in Melbourne, and it was very very technical. You know, I feel that it's one of the hardest dishes to master. Uh, I remember I used um, so I invited friends over, thinking that it would be like simple. You know, what I mean. I mean, not simple, but like, you know, I just followed the meat man recipe. How hard can it get, right? And then like, I just made a few improvisations. But it was very difficult because I remember when I was, the moment I added the noodles in, so I did three, three types of noodles, yellow noodles, the thick bihun and the thin bihun. Once I put it in, my friends were like, hey, we're here, you know, come and pick us up. So I said, Wax, can you like watch over this? And then I'll go downstairs and like pick up my friends. So by the time I came up, like the noodles had become so soggy and they were starting to break, you know, because the, the bihun was like, I mean, thin bihun, if you overcook it, it will break into pieces and it became like a starchy mess. But, you know, thank God they were not Singaporean. So they were like, oh, you know, it's good and everything. But in my heart, I knew that that wasn't hooking me. <laughs> yeah, I remember telling Mike, so um, the prep work, can you imagine doing this at scale? So the prep work that goes behind 
um, the noodles is just crazy, right? Because you have to cook the, first you have to prepare the broth. Uh, so my dad is always down at the store at 9 a.m., 8 a.m., 9 a.m. every day to start the preparation work. And he only starts selling noodles at 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and the prep work continues throughout the whole day because you have to first cook the prawns, cook the, like the, um, the pork belly, and you have to cook the, the sotong. And then after that, you have to like slice and peel and like yeah. cut them into appropriate portions. Um, and, and of course, there's like all like the broth itself takes, you know, a super long time as well. So I always ask my dad, why do you pick another recipe? Like, why do you pick another dish? <laughs> why do you pick like, the most complex dish? <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like cooking Hokkien Mee at home is very different compared to cooking it at the stall in terms of flavor or in terms of the way that he approaches it? Uh, I think it's very difficult to replicate the wok hay mm. because like home stoves are just not that strong. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, I think that's the hardest part to re- replicate. Um, but otherwise, as long as your ingredients are fresh, mm. um, the, the, the flavor of the stock will be there. Yeah. But I would say the wok hay is the hardest. Yeah. I've been wanting to cook um, Hokkien Mee for Singapore noodles for the longest time, but I always feel a bit apprehensive about it. First of all, it's hard to find the right ingredients um, in that when you live overseas, right, the squid is different. Like it's big and fat and white. Whereas like in Singapore, you have the nice, you know, small uh, purple ones. And then the the lime, you know, we don't have calamansi. She has all that, you know, big lime. Yeah. So it's very, very different. And because I love Hokkien Mee so much, it has to be up there along with chicken rice. So I don't want to like mar my memory of, of the dish, you know. I'm sure you can relate lah, like when you really love something, you can't bring yourself to cook it. Like, oh, it's like, ah, uh, like my favourite is the one at Marymount. It's like, if I were to cook it here, I will always be comparing it to, to that. So I think that's the difficulty and, you know, it's also so technical. I don't want to like put up a crappy recipe, right? And then like get food or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if, if and when you come back to Singapore, um, I'm, well, I'm sure you'll come back to Singapore. Um, just, just come by my place. I'm sure my mom will be happy to see you. Yeah, I would love to. This has been extremely fun chatting with you. Like, I didn't know so many things about you, even though I've known you for like how many years? You must be 15. No, I think 17. Oh god, you are so old. (laughs) Thanks for coming to the show and you know, I think it's so refreshing to hear directly from someone from a hawker family. Like it gives like a completely new perspective. Thank you, thank you for having me. That wraps up another episode of Singapore Noodles. Our guest on this show was Felicia Tan. For those of you who are new to this show, you can find recipes on our website at sgpnoodles.com and if you are keen on receiving more cooking tips and stories, you can sign up for our newsletter at sgpnoodles.substack.com That is S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K Also, Singapore Noodles is now in the top 3 most listened to podcasts in Singapore and it blows my mind that we have listeners listening in from the Netherlands, uh, Sweden, China and Denmark amongst other countries. So thank you everyone for the love and the support and I'll see you guys next week.